All right, well, good morning, everyone. We have been in a sermon series called Everyday Advent. We've been looking at the second coming of Jesus um, in a time where we usually reflect on His first coming. And we've also talked about how we stand between the first advent, between the manger um, that has already happened, Jesus' first coming, to, and awaiting His second coming, the throne, as He, as he comes back to rule. And there's tension there, and, and during the last few weeks in Advent, we have embraced that tension. We've talked about that tension, and I will continue to look at that. And tomorrow is Christmas Eve, and as I, as I listen on the radio, um, there are songs filled about the coming of Santa. You all hear it? And I want to prove that. I want to I hear your, um, your, your Santa trivia. So if you could finish this song for me. I want you just to, just to do it. So when I go like this, I want to hear the rest of the lyrics. You ready? All right. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Exactly. Now, can you, can you quote that Thessalonians verse? That, just, uh, <laughs> the idea of Santa coming to town um, has created family traditions, right? We, you know, I would take my kids to go see Santa or the Santa parade. Some of us have Santa obsessions. Um, our, we, just, we just are decked out with, uh, we wear Santa hats everywhere we go. Um, and as parents... And kids, if you're in here, um, just close your ears. But as parents, we have used Santa's coming as a way to make our kids act better. Haven't we? If you don't act good, Santa's not going to come bring you a gift. Don't worry, I've used it too. We'll use anything we can at times. <laughs> Yet, when it comes to the second coming of Jesus, we often get confused. We're uninterested. Or we have, some of us have this unhealthy obsession that is totally detached from Scripture about what it's going to look like when Jesus comes back. And a lot of that's been fueled by two very opposite poles of thought that we encounter as Christians when we think about the coming of Jesus. And so the first is what I, I call the, the pessimistic, we're just passing through view. And in this view, the physical world is very evil. Everything in the world's evil, but everything spiritual is really good. And the idea of resource stewardship and social justice um, really don't matter that much because Christ is returning and He's going to burn the world up anyways and start all over again. And if you care about those things, social justice or, or resource stewardship, um, it's, it's because you really don't trust Jesus that much. And the good news of the gospel is really reduced to this idea that we get to escape the physical world and be with Jesus in heaven. And this was what I grew up with, and it scared the heck out of me. Because um, there's things in this world that I love. And it, and it didn't make sense, and it was this sense of escapism, and everything's burning up. And you got that end of the pool, but then you got the exact, exact opposite end of the pool, which is we call the progressive optimism or the myth of progress. That claims that since Jesus has not returned yet, it must not be a literal return. And anything you read in the Bible about Jesus returning is all myth. It's not real. And as a matter of fact, Christ has already returned in our hearts. That's what he meant. And so, 
we see that the kingdom in this way of thought, the kingdom advances through progressive activism and social justice. And things are getting better. Can't you notice? And, and despite the, the evidence that things aren't getting better. And so there's some sort of, of sense of, of illogical thought on this. And the gospel is reduced to the social gospel. It's about social action. So you have these totally polar views and a whole bunch of stuff in between. And because of this, many of, uh, many of us have ascribed to the idea that, you know what, this second coming to Jesus thing really doesn't matter too much. Because I don't even want to think about it because I don't even know what to think about it. So it doesn't really matter to me. But it does matter. It matters because it's in Scripture. And we see that the first and second advents remind us that our hope is firmly placed in a God that is in control. A God who is with us forever and a God who is renewing all things. Therefore, we have peace in all things. So when we don't think about the second coming, we don't embrace this really good hope that we have in this life now and the life to come. So the title of today's message is Angels at the Advents, and we're going to really look at that first Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18 verse, verses. And during the first advent of Jesus, we see that he revealed, God revealed the news of his coming Savior to lowly shepherds in Jerusalem. It was very localized to Jerusalem through angels. And these shepherds were told that there would be a sign of the coming Messiah. It would be a baby in a manger wrapped in cloths. But what about his second advent? What about when he returns? What, what, what sign should we be looking for? And this was the same question that the church, the Thessalonian church had as well. This church was located in uh, Macedonia um, in an extremely pl uh, pluralistic society. There was a lot of schools of thought you had a Jewish society, you had, you had a Greek society, and they came together, and this church was very mixed. And there was plenty of Christian opposition, and there was some false teaching going around about what the second coming of Jesus was going to be like. And so this church was very confused, and they needed reassurance. And I think we could relate to that. All you got to do is do an internet search, and you're like, oh, wow, there's a lot of thoughts on this, and it's kind of weird. So, what Paul does, in a very pastoral way, he uses this Jewish uh, apocalyptic imagery that provides them and us some general ways to frame what it's going to look like when Jesus returns. And I want to, before we really start this, I want to just kind of touch on something Pastor John mentioned a couple weeks ago. Is as we look at this, these are general signs, never meant to be a, a strict chronological Thing. It's, it's, it's framing what this is going to look like. And Paul's point here is more in a pastoral capacity. So today what I want to do is I want to offer three truths to help us frame the second coming of Jesus so that we can avoid these extreme views of the second coming of Jesus so that we can be encouraged as we await his return. This is all about being encouraged. So let us pray and let me ask God just to bless our time as we really break into this. So Father, we thank you for this time. We entreat you by your Holy Spirit to teach us the things that we do not know. These are hard things. Speak to us. Open our hearts. Reveal your truth to us. Be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So the first truth we're going to look at is the Advent invasion. The Advent invasion. Now, as kids, and I remember as kids, my, as, a, as a child, my hope for getting good presents uh, or getting presents was being good. That was my hope. My hope for getting presents at, at Christmas was I will be good and I'm going to get presents. And we tell our kids that as well, like I mentioned earlier. But our hope in this world has nothing to do about being good. Our, ho- our eternal hope is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. So we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 16, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep with us. So we see that the church, uh, the Thessalonian church was very confused. They, and they were grieving because they had lost people in their congregation, in their families. People had died. And there seems to have been some false teaching going around. We don't know exactly what that teaching was that was saying, well, since those people have died, um, when Jesus returns, they will not be resurrected. They're, they won't be, they will, they won't be uh, with you anymore. And they were, there were some cause for concern. And I think that we have to look back and, and, and ask, why were they so confused about the resurrection? We read the Bible and we see that there will be a great resurrection. But from their perspective, they didn't understand that. There was two major schools of thought. You had the Greek... Um, Folks in their congregation that had a really Greek idea of this. The, the idea uh, of the time with the Greeks was there is no hope for life after death. You just become kind of this floating spirit, and, and, uh, but there's no actual resurrection. And then from a Jewish perspective, they did believe in a resurrection, but they assumed that that resurrection had already happened in Christ. They, they thought there would be a huge one-time resurrection. So when Jesus is resurrected, they're like, was that the resurrection? Did it, did it already happen? And so now they have people in their families, in their churches that have died, and they think, we're never going to see them again. And they're confused about this whole resurrection thing. And so Paul is making it clear in these verses that the end goal of our redemption in Christ isn't to be apart from the body in heaven. He's making it clear that the end goal of redemption is to be present with the body in Christ in a new creative order and partaking with Christ in that new creative order. That's his whole point here. The idea isn't we're just escaping heaven and that's it. The idea is that, no, there's resurrection and there's a real resurrection that's coming in this world. It's actually going to happen with people that are in Christ and will be with Christ and it's, it's life attached with the body in Christ. And he makes it clear that Jesus is coming in the flesh to bring this renewal. Verse 15 says, according to the Lord's word, meaning what Jesus actually said during his earthly ministry, we tell you that we, are, we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep, meaning those that have died. He's saying, listen, we're all, when Jesus comes back, the, resurrect, the, the dead will be resurrected, and we'll be there with him at the same time. So, the good news of the gospel is more than just heaven. It's heaven and earth coming crashing together in a renewed order where all Christians of, uh, of ever will, will be there partaking of Jesus. And that's what he's trying to make it clear to them. But there's some confusion. What does this idea of the coming of the Lord mean? And that's where we get some of the different um, schools of thought. And the word coming here has very two distinct, very clear ideas in the Greek. 
It, we kind of missed it in the English. But the two distinct ideas are, one, mysterious, a mysterious, powerful, sudden awareness of a supernatural divine presence. So that's, one, what it means when Paul says the coming of the Lord. And two, it describes a royal presence as an emperor or rule, ruler makes a visit to a place where they actually rule. So what does this mean for us? It means that the coming of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus, will happen suddenly. We'll know that it's happening and that He is coming to uh, rule as He already does in heaven, but also on earth. But He's actually going to proceed and process in it. This is very much um, an invasion of sorts. And unlike the, the first advent that was localized just with the shepherds in Jerusalem, the second advent's going to be global. It's going to be cataclysmic. It's going to be for everyone to see. Verse, verse 16 says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel. The archangel is his high-ranking commander. And with the, trumpet call, um, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Everyone's going to see this. This isn't going to be something like, oh, did we miss the resurrection? It's not going to happen. The archangel, will, will, it's going to be a global cataclysmic event. And Paul's not, again, not giving us clear details of exactly what that looks like. He's giving us imagery to say, it's going to be the sudden presence. You're going to know it's Jesus. And he's coming back. And it's going to happen. And we see that he's stepping down from heaven. And I want you to understand this isn't a literal stepping down. We often think of heaven as up here and we're down here. Again, this is more talking about that we will know. It's, it's, somewhat, it's somewhat like when you say um, someone's climbing the ladder of, of success. We don't literally mean they're climbing the ladder, but their sphere of influence has, sh has shifted. So Jesus' sphere of influence will shift and we'll know it. You can amen then, that's good. Amen. And we see that this is, this is using invasion language. And this is, this is an invasion declaring Christ is king and judge and that our citizenship in heaven can be fully experienced because resurrection reality is here. So the truth we need to grasp here, the truth we need to grasp as we look at this, is that Christ is returning bodily in the flesh to merge heaven and earth and to bring a real resurrection. This is a real event. Paul is using this imagery to talk about a literal event that's going to happen. You see, things are not getting better. We see that every single day. And there's no amount of social action alone that'll make it so. So the only hope that we have is we, the hope that we have is, is in the gospel, uh, of the gospel that speaks of this resurrection, about restoring all things. And here's the thing. Why is resurrection so good? I want to escape. I, I, I'm fine with escaping, Brian. Just get me out of here. But that's not the point. The point is, is God is renewing all things. And when he renews all things, at the very core of that, he's restoring us and this world. He's restoring the dignity that was taken from you. Do you realize that? Your dignity will be restored. Anything that's been marred because of sin, because of what has been done to you, or because you've willingly done that because of sin, is restored. Your relationships are restored. All these things are restored. That's what we're talking about. In the flesh, they're being restored. That, that sense where you don't feel like you belong, that's restored. You actually feel like, I belong. 
And that, that you know, restlessness of peace, like I just don't feel peaceful. Every time I do something, I just don't feel peaceful. And so we changed directions, we changed vocations, we changed whatever. He's restoring that peace that was lost at the garden. And I think the world, our neighbors, our families, and perhaps even you, if you do not know Jesus, need to hear this. This is the good news of the Gospel. That Jesus Christ came in the flesh. We all have fallen short and deserve, we do not deserve God's glory. We don't deserve God's salvation. We've all fallen short. We've all sinned. We all separated from God. But God in the flesh came down from heaven as a baby, lived a perfect and righteous life. We put our faith and trust in Him. We are raised to new life. And one day He's coming back to merge heaven and earth and we will be resurrected in glorious bodies like His forever and dwell with Him and each other. That's the good news of the Gospel. So that's the first thing. The second thing, the second truth we need to look at is the Advent delegation. Now, this Christmas, we'll be going to Erica's house, Erica's uh, cousin's house. When we go to Erica's cousin's house, it's a sweet reunion. People gather and and people I haven't seen in a while, and everyone just hugs each other. And I don't know if you've ever had that sense where you haven't seen family members for a very long time. And we get that sense. And when we look at the second coming of Jesus, we see that there's going to be an ultimate reunion when Christ returns. First Thessalonians 4.17 says, After that, we who are still alive um, and are left will be caught up together or seized or grasped hastily. That's where we get the word rapture with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So this is the only place in Scripture where we see this word, that word rapture. We've heard of the rapture. This is where we see that at. And so we have to be very careful not to build an entire theology off of one word. So what does this mean? Again, Paul is using this imagery of the coming king proceeding into a town and we're being raptured or we're coming to meet him as a delegation party to escort him in the town. And this was common practice in ancient day. We see the imagery with the clouds along with the trumpet and the angel in verse 16 point to Christ returning as judge and making all things better. So what does it mean when we, we see that we're to meet Him in the air? Again, this is imagery. We just know that when Christ returns, we're going to be there and we're going to escort Him in as redeemed people of God. It means that there's going to be this Sudden, transformative moment where every believer will be glorified together, face to face with Christ. And there's relief there. There's relief there. And we see that. And so, we will be with the Lord. Forever. So how does this bring relief? Because it's going to be the best family reunion ever. It's going to be the best family reunion ever. When, when all Christians in all of redemptive history are, are resurrected and redeemed and we're face to face with Christ. It's going to be like when you have a family reunion at, at, uh, at your house and you like start hugging people that you haven't seen forever or you really don't know. When I first met Erica's family, people are hugging me and I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. And I'm just hugging them. And you just have this affection. That's what he's talking about. This is what it's going to be like. The ultimate family reunion. This ultimate family reunion completes our union in Christ. And so we see that this Advent time, as, we, as we, we look at the second Advent of Jesus, points to the ultimate Easter. 
where we'll be resurrected together. So the truth we need to grasp here is that the physical world matters. The physical world right now matters because Christ intends to rule in a renewed creative order and we're going to be with him. So everything that we do matters here and right now. Things are not as bad as they, can't, they could be and everything that we do matters. Our work, our families, our education, our interactions, everything matters. God works in and through these things and he's going to renew all of these things and continue that renewal when he returns. And oftentimes we get discouraged in our lives. I don't know about you, but um, I, I don't like giving gifts for Christmas. I, maybe, I mean, it's not because I'm cheap. All right? It's because I don't know what to get people. I'm the worst gift giver ever. And I see people that are awesome at it. And they give these big gifts. And I'm like, man. And it, it, you almost feel like deficient at it. Like I have some sort of gift giving deficiency. Um, and it could be discouraging for me. I'm not going to lie. And sometimes with life, that's what we feel. We feel like our lives, we're not, just do, we're not doing the like, most awesome, sexy thing, so it must not matter to God, because God only cares about the really big things. But that's not true. He cares about the ordinary things. Because he's renewing everything. He's not just renewing the big things, he's renewing every single thing. And will complete that renewal upon his return. Again, we're going to be there with him. So, that's our second thing, our final thing. The third truth we're going to look at is that is the Advent exhortation. Now, there's certain Christmas movies I like, but most of them I do not like. Eric has been watching these Christmas movies. They're sappy as the, they can ever be. Everyone's so happy and merry, and I'm just like, this isn't real life. And you know, there's people that we run into this time of year that things aren't happy and merry. They're thinking about relationships lost, people not here. Things are not good. And sometimes all this merriness, it just like drives the stake that much harder in our hearts. And so this is kind of the place where the church, the, the Thessalonian church is at. And so Paul um, sent, gives them this encouragement and then he, he continues, 1 Thessalonians 4.18. He says, therefore... So he just talked about the second coming of Jesus, the resurrection, the renewal of all things. And he says, therefore, so this is the whole point. Encourage one another with these words. Therefore, encourage one another, one another with these words. He's saying, this is an encouragement. This isn't something that you're, that's, that's coming to fruition at this very moment, but it will. And encourage each other with this. And so in his pastoral gentleness, Paul is reminding us that we need each other. We need to encourage one another. So the question is, is how do we encourage one another? Well, we see in Second Thessalonians 2, he called you to this through our gospel that, your, uh, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings, or in other words, or the traditions. We passed, we passed on to you, whether by word or by mouth or by the letter. So what is he saying? He's saying that we are called to give each other the gift of encouragement through reminding each other of the glory of, of, the, glory of the future resurrection. That things are going to be set right, so we need to encourage each other in that. He also talks about 
encouraging one another with the teachings or traditions. So we see we're called to encourage one another with the partaking of God's Word together and reading of God's Word together. Not platitudes, but actual truth that we find in God's Word. And we also we see that that spills on over to things like the sacraments, like when we, do, when we take communion together. That's something that we could encourage one another as we partake of communion or, or baptism. It reminds us that we belong to a, a big family that we've never even met. There's people we've never ever met in, in Christ, saints that have persevered before us that will one day come face to face and feel a, a, an affection towards because they are in Christ. And then we see that we're also to encourage one another through care. We're supposed to care for one another and partaking of what I like to call sacramental acts, like eating together, spending time with one another. And so we're to encourage that. So what's the truth here? The truth here that we need to grasp is that as we await the return of Christ, we need each other. So I want you to look around. Just look around real quick. We have people in our church family that are lonely, that are hurting, and we need each other, and we need to come alongside them. So, I just want to encourage you to reach out. We're the body of Christ, and we're meant to do this life together. And so we're called to give the gift of one another to each other. So, I'm going to close up. As I close, some of you on Christmas Eve and Christmas, you're going to be traveling all over the place. And there's tension there. Who do we spend time with? Who do we don't, don't spend time with? We have to go to point A to point B. What's going on? And you're going to feel that tension. And that's kind of the tension of Advent, of everyday Advent. That's what we've been talking about. The tension um, that we feel is be, being between the, the first angels at the Advent and the second angels at the Advent. So what do we do? Well, angels are messengers of God. And we're called to continue that heralding message that the first angels that revealed uh, the, the good news of Jesus at the, uh, to the shepherds. We're called to continue that, that message, that, that ministry of, of the message of Jesus Christ until we are relieved by the trumpet horn of the second angels. So this time tomorrow, it's going to be Christmas Eve. You heard Cindy? She mentioned four Christmas Eve services. All I'm asking you to do is invite. There's people that never would even consider coming to church or hearing anything about Jesus except on this one time a year. And you know who they are. They're in your family. They're your people you come across in your everyday. Let's invite them. Let's give them the gift of Jesus this year. So I want to pray for us as, we, as you consider that. And then after that, I'll invite our ushers forward. So Father, we thank you for this time. This is tough truth. This is a lot to absorb. But I pray that you would give us grace to be your messengers. Give us grace and encouragement as we await your, your second advent. May you put on our hearts those that need to hear the good news of, of, of Jesus. I pray that we would have the courage to invite them tomorrow to the Christmas Eve services. So we love you and we give this all to you, to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.